We start with a reading of 1 Kings chapter 3, but the recording is missing verses 4 through 8. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there is no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walked in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high place. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge the people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall anyone like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed he was not my son whom I had born. And then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No. But the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. Another says, No, but your son son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, Divide the living children into, and give half to one and half to the other. But the woman, whose son was living, spoke to the king, for she yearned and compassion, with, her, with compassion for her son. And she said, O oh my Lord, give her the living chi- child, and by no means kill him. And the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divine him. And the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw the wisdom of the, of, 
For they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Lord, you've done so much. As David asks, who am I? And who are we, Lord, that you've brought us this far? Your name is great and greatly to be praised. You've set your glory above the heavens. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him. Lord, we are taking another road trip this morning through your word. We open this day to the book of First Kings. And here we see the end of a united kingdom. In the beginning stages of a divided kingdom. And while painful to watch unfold... We trust that you are even now restoring your people to yourself. Teach us, Lord, to number our days rightly, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Blessed are those who keep your testimonies, who seek you with their whole heart. You've commanded us, Lord, to keep your precepts diligently to fully follow after you. Incline our hearts this morning to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn our eyes away from worthless things and revive us in your ways. Establish your word to your servants this day, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. First Kings completes David's reign. We see David's reign, his death will come at the end of chapter 2. Chapters 3 through 11 will survey uh, his son Solomon and his 40-year reign from chapters 3 through 11. And then 1 Kings also provides a detailed account of the divided kingdom, beginning with the accounts of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and that That takes us from 12 through 22. Really, those are the three breakouts, uh, if you will, just getting a handhold on the book of 1 Kings. I think that's helpful just to have those, uh, to know uh, the the breakdown of those 22 chapters in general. 1 Kings is the history of God at work. That's our sort of a recurrent theme through our uh, this particular genre of study in the scriptures, the history books we've been going through, right? Uh, so First Kings is the history of God at work. God at work, and I appreciate, Kevin, you bringing that forward in the Lord's Supper time this morning. As bad and as, as wicked and evil and corrupt and perverse as things get, God is still at work. 
And 1 Kings is another picture of the history of God at work through the lives of the kings. Right? By the time you close the book of 1 Kings, you are through the account of King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And you get introduced to King Ahaziah, son of Ahab, king of Israel. Okay, that's where 1 Kings leaves us. The end of chapter 22. 2 Kings then picks up this line of kings and traces the paths of the kings on both sides of the divided kingdom. What we'll see next week is that 2 Kings 17 becomes a pivotal chapter. 2 Kings 17 is the end of the line for Israel, right? Assyria comes, uh, there's a date that's probably etched into many of your minds, 722 B.C. Uh, Assyria comes. And we see several years later in 2 Kings 25, the end of 2 Kings is going to describe the destruction of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And another familiar date to many of you, 586 B.C. That, that will come into play as we get into 2 Kings. I want to give you a, just a, a brief snapshot synopsis of these next four books because in many ways we're covering a lot of material a short period of time and as we see when we get into first chronicles and second chronicles there'll be some crossover to what we've talked about in first kings and second kings okay first chronicles is going to begin with a list of genealogies everyone's favorite right and a roll call of names then it's going to provide another account Another angle, another look, another uh, a way of, I, I liken it to how we have four gospel writers. And each of the gospel writers have a different approach as they are all moved by the Holy Spirit. The chronicle writer has uh, a different approach than the, the writer of, of Samuel. Second Samuel was much of David's life. And we'll see First Chronicles is going to give us another account of King David. Through, the, through much of First Chronicles. And then Second Chronicles starts with Solomon, whom we'll be speaking of a little bit this morning. Second Chronicles begins with Solomon and then covers the entire group of kings. Covers it a little bit differently, though. Really what we get in Second Chronicles is a snapshot of the kings of Judah. Right? We, don't, we get it minus, really, the kings of Israel. In, in Kings, these book of Kings, we get both the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah kind of pitted alongside, side by side as they are reigning and ruling. But Second Chronicles will handle that a little bit differently and primarily give us more of a breakout on the kings of Judah. Okay, So just a little bit of a, a handle on these next four books. We're reading the history of God at work in the lives of his kings. Remember as you read God's word that he is working... Amidst what becomes a fractured line, that's my best artwork of a fractured line. That's, that's really what happens, church. It's a fractured line when we get to the end of Solomon's life. And we see God at work in the midst of the fractured line. Sometimes we focus solely upon uh, the, the ugliness and the mess that happens when the kingdom divides. And yes, it, it is messy and it's ugly. But let's not lose sight of what God is doing in the midst of that awful time. God's still at work. 
And I want to just raise that up for us to be able to see. God is using individuals. And we see a few of those individuals shine brightly here in this book of 1 King. People that God is using to proclaim his word of truth. God's moving. God is at work. He's raising up. He's tearing down. That's what God is. He's doing, he's doing that very thing. He's working through, he's working on, and he's working in spite of various kings that are crowned king in Judah and in Israel. Okay? So we have this division, chapters 1 and 2. David establishes Solomon as king. David is uh, getting old. If you look at the first verse of 1 Kings, we get this context. Now King David was old, advanced in years. And they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. That gives us a picture of David, kind of his physical state. He's, he's in bad shape here as, as 1 Kings opens up. He's old. Keep in mind that David, this was something that was interesting to me as I was studying this. David became king. He started reigning when he was 30. And he reigned for 40 years. So David is 70 years old. And, and he's old. And I thought to myself, man, I'm, uh, I'm not too far away from that. And I, I remember growing up thinking, uh, when my parents reached 40, that was old. And I'm already past 40. I've blown by 40. And so, you know, somewhere in between here, we see David is at a state in his life. He's old, he's advanced in years, and he can't keep himself warm. So they bring a young lady in to care for his needs. And we see chapters 1 and 2, David, before he dies, making sure that everyone in the nation knows and understands that his son Solomon is the one that is intended to be seated on the throne. And we see chapters 3 through 11 then, Solomon's reign as king. I put these three W's down here because I think in many ways they define Solomon's reign. Wisdom is, is oftentimes what we think of. With Solomon, we oftentimes think of Solomon and his wealth. And tragically, we oftentimes think of Solomon and his many wives. 700 to be exact, along with 300 concubines. For you math folks out there, that's a thousand wives and concubines total. Wisdom, wealth, and wives... 12 to 22 then, we see this kingdom divided or fractured. And this kingdom that gets divided begins with looking at these two folks named Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Going backwards to the beginning of Samuel, we see Saul is the people's choice for king, isn't he? Remember the text said he stood head and shoulders above all the rest of the people? He looked the part Saul did for king. Well, after Saul, then there was this young man, David, who was a shepherd boy. In fact, he wasn't even in the house when Samuel goes to Jesse's house to anoint this next king. And they go through the whole line of David's brothers and, and Samuel says, is there any other? He says, and Jesse says, well, yeah, but he's out tending to the flock. And he says, bring him in. And that's the one. God says, that's the one. 
And David is the one who is the king after God's own heart. That's the second king we see. And now we see here in 1 Kings this transition from David to Solomon. Solomon is the son of David. He's the one promised to inherit the throne. He's the one that was promised to build God a house, right? David was going to do that. Nathan shows up and says, no, it's going to be your son. Solomon's going to be that one. We have three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Each one serves 40 years in length. Okay? As we're thinking about history, as we're thinking, these are things on the real history timeline, friends. Okay? They really did reign. They really did serve during these periods of time. Beginning in 1051, Saul began to reign for 40 years. 40 years after him was David and then Solomon. Remember that these three kings launched what we know as the period of the kings for the people of Israel. Transitioning from the period of the judges into now this period of the kings. And for over 450 years, the kings will rule and reign. And these next four books, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, will provide summary and detailed accounts of their leadership, these kings. Some led well, followed the Lord, and prospered under his provision. Others led poorly, chasing the gods of their neighbors, and suffered the consequences of their poor decisions. In fact, when we read these accounts of the kings, it really ends up being an account of the nation, doesn't it? Whether we're talking Israel or Judah. For as the kings were, so were the people. That seems to be the pattern. Very seldom, if ever, do you read of a king leading poorly and the people living godly lives through his reign. Very seldom, if ever, do you read of a king leading well and the people living ungodly lives throughout his reign. The text seems to bear out a correlation between the two. It's really a leadership principle. It ought not surprise us. A king who leads well is prospered and has good success in the eyes of the Lord. And we've already given that definition of what it is to be successful in the eyes of the Lord, right? Joshua chapter 1. Do not turn from the book of the law. Meditate upon this word day and night. And if you do that, you will find good success and you will prosper. But the converse is also true. A king who leads poorly has forsaken God and causes the people under his care to forsake God as well. Okay? The kings and the chronicles are, are great studies of what happens when godly leadership is in place versus what happens when ungodly leadership is in place. People look to their leaders, whether at a national level, a state level, in your community, at your workplace, in your household. It's where it really begins, isn't it? Where it gets played out, where it gets practiced, exercised. Children are watching the one whom God has set up as leader in your home. 
And each leader in the home is gifted uniquely, goes about his leadership in different ways. But listen, each leader is called upon to lead by the same standards of truth and righteousness. This, friends, we ought not waver on. In fact, it's probably helpful at this point to take your Bible and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17 for just a moment. Deuteronomy, we need to review this portion of the law. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, remember in Deuteronomy they haven't crossed over into the land yet. Okay, So when you get to the land, when you inherit this land and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. They didn't do that until 1 Samuel, right? Okay, But it's talking about it right here. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. Listen to what the king is not supposed to do. Okay, Take note of this. It might be good to just jot this down. Because it comes into play with Solomon. This is what a king's not supposed to do. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Seems to me in my reading in 1 Kings, Solomon was purchasing lots and lots of horses from Egypt to me. Exporting them in, the best of the best. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Look at verse 17. Neither shall he multiply. This is what the king is not supposed to do. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Lest what? Does God leave us hanging on why? He doesn't. He says very clearly. Lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. You know, for as wise as this man Solomon was, this wealth got a hold of him. This wealth got him. And the wives got him as well. The wealth was used to purchase all the horses and all the stuff. The wealth, see, the wealth is, is not in and of itself the problem. It's how he ends up using that wealth. I believe he ends up as king thinking that anything goes. I'm king. David experienced a little bit of that as king. We see, because once David, the text says in 2 Samuel, once he realized that, that he had been established as king over all of Israel, the very next verse says then he took additional concubines. Almost as though the text is almost leading us to believe that David understood himself to be king. And so now, since I'm king, this is what a king does. Deuteronomy 17, David. Deuteronomy 17, Solomon. There's more. The first part here says what he's not to do. Now, Now... In many ways, 18, 19, and 20 of Deuteronomy says, here's what you are to do, kings. 
Here's your primary, kings. This is what you hold your hat on, kings. This is what you're building your kingdom upon, kings. Listen, verse 18. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. Write for himself a copy of this law. Look at verse 19. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it. He shall what? He shall read it. All the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord as God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And there's a, there's a purpose clause attached to this. That Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. You see, this is the danger right here. When you've got unlimited budget, we call it in our house. Unlimited budget. When you have unlimited budget, watch out. Danger. He may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom. Oh, Solomon is given that very opportunity, friends. If he would just simply walk in the ways of his father, David, if he would carry out the ways and the commandments of the Lord, his God. Deuteronomy 17 is an important passage of Scripture to look at as you enter into this book of 1 Kings. In short, we ask the question, what is it a king is to do? A king is to lead by the word of God. A king is to have the word with him. To know this word, to take it in each day. And men, God has placed you as king in your home. Do you think that God would instruct kings to have the scriptures with them and in them and not intend for fathers and mothers to also have these same scriptures in them and with them? Really, this is a reference in many ways back to Deuteronomy 6, isn't it? Right? We are to have these words on our hearts so that we might impress them upon our children. It's really a kingly thing that we do, men. And it's tragic when we don't take this word in ourselves. And it's tragic when we don't take the word and share it with those in our own household. Same consequences. Destruction. Spiral. This is God's way. By his word. We saw last week how David inquired of the Lord, how he modeled the kindness of the Lord, how he confessed his sin to the Lord, right? And then it ended in 2 Samuel by his worshiping the Lord. Well, Solomon is next in line to be the king according to the promise made to him by God. 
someone forgot to tell Adonijah. Adonijah is Absalom's younger brother. He didn't get the memo that Solomon was supposed to be next. And so 1 Kings opens with what should be a relatively smooth transition. We've talked about transition, and it came to pass, right? Should be relatively smooth from David to Solomon, but instead there's turmoil, there's friction, there's tension. And listen, that ought not surprise us a whole lot because of what was prophesied to David, right? That his family was going to be Fractured in turmoil after his sin. There were still going to be ramifications for his sin. Here's another, here's another picture of it. Adonijah sets himself to be the next king. And you know what's worse? What's worse in this whole deal is that he has a following. He has a following. Joab, Abiathar, the priest. These were guys who served under David. These were guys who should have known better. They come alongside Adonijah. In fact, look in the text. Look look at it yourself. Chapter 1, verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. You might underline those two words. Exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now listen, church. It's never a good idea to exalt yourself against God and his plans. Never a good idea. In fact, we learn that from Nebuchadnezzar, four, Daniel 4, 37. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. That's how it begins. Flip with me to uh, chapter 2. And just look at the beginning of chapter 2. David, the days of David drew near that he should die. Okay, he's just about to die. And he charged Solomon, his son. Listen to what he says. I go the way of all the earth. That's fancy language for I'm about to die. Okay? Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Those are words reminiscent of of Joshua, right? Be strong, be courageous, prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, He said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So we see here these verses 2 through 4, really a personal charge to Solomon. Be strong. Prove yourself a man. Can you think of any greater words from a father to a son? Prove yourself a man. 
Stand and walk in the ways of the Lord, son. And then verse 5 and 6. It's sort of like some administrative details he gives before he dies. Now, I'll let you decide whether or not these were details that should have been given and should have been shared to his son. Interesting that he brings these forward before he dies. Verses 5 and 6, he talks about Joab, how he shed blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist. In verse 6, he's pretty clear. Do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Verse 7, contrast. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai. Let them be among those who eat at your table, for they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. They showed kindness to me, David said. Therefore, I'd like you to show kindness to their son, to his sons. And then 8 and 9. Remember that fellow Shimei? The guy who was cursing at David and throwing dirt clods at him along the way? His name gets brought up. Of all the people, you know, I thought David, you know, here he is, he's about to die. I mean, let, come on. Shimei, out of all the people he encountered in his lifetime, would we say that Shimei was like, you know, a, a rival, like someone, a thorn? But for some reason, Shimei is brought up right here. David still got Shimei on his mind. What does he say? He remembers what Shimei did to him. He came down, also met me at the Jordan. I swore to him by the Lord. Listen, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man, Solomon, and know what you ought to do. Well, there's, I wonder if there's a message there behind those words. You know what you ought to do. But bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now it only takes one chapter for the Lord to put Adonijah down. Remember Adonijah, he asks a question that I'm sure he wished he wouldn't have asked. Because that question gets him into trouble and sets off Solomon and, and fireworks go and, and really, in many ways, chapter 2, chapter 2, Solomon is, is like cleaning house. It's house cleaning. He's establishing his kingdom. Adonijah's gone. Joab gets executed. Abiathar, the priest, interestingly enough, I find this interesting. Abiathar, he's not killed. He's removed from office. And I got to thinking, you know, what a contrast and somewhat of a breath of fresh air in comparison to what we read about in 1 Samuel with this man Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were corrupt and perverse. And Eli did nothing more than say, "What sons, what you're doing is not good. Eli took no action to remove these perverse individuals from their priestly office. Abiathar gets removed, banished, if you will, He's removed from office. And his life is spared 
the text tells us. Not because of any good necessarily that he did, but because of his connection to Solomon's father, David. In Shimei, we see the account at the end of chapter 2. Three years into Solomon's reign, he's killed. A couple of his slaves leave and he ends up leaving town. Folks find out about Isn't it amazing how quick they find out about Shimei left town. Shimei left town. Solomon hears about it. Boom, he goes to him and he reminds him of the promise he made. I'm going to be here. I'm not going to go anywhere. And that was the catalyst for Shimei's death. Then 2, verse 46. says, then the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. House cleaning is done. Requests from David have been taken care of. As you travel into the second section of Kings, you see Solomon established as king. And chapter 3, church, begins with a red flag. Listen. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Now, if, if we ever had a flashing neon sign to just drape around the beginning of chapter 3, here it is, right here. Bloop, 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 bloop. That ought to just... Marrying Pharaoh's daughter. What do we read in Deuteronomy 17? Solomon is building himself. It says at the end of chapter 3, verse 1, building himself a house. He's building God a house, and he's building a wall around Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. He's at Gibeon, and the Lord appears to Solomon. This is his first visit to Solomon. He'll visit again here in a few chapters. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? You know, and we stop there, and and, boy, we can can explore that question from God, can't we? And, 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 And think to ourselves what it might have been like to have been in Solomon's shoes to have a question like that asked by God. It begins with ask. God's coming to Solomon and encouraging him to ask, what, what is it shall I give you? Verse 9, he says, Give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. Solomon is requesting understanding, an understanding heart to discern good and evil. I want you to get that. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Look at 13 and 14. I have also given, this is, the text says that God is pleased with Solomon's answer. And God goes on then and says in 13 and 14, I've also given you what you have not asked. Riches and honor. So that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if 
you walk. If, you might underline that one, if, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes, my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Fast forward to chapter 9. Fast forward to chapter 9. The Lord makes a second appearance to Solomon. It came to pass, there's the transitional phrase, Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do. The Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you've built to put my name there forever. Listen to this next phrase. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now if you will walk before me as your father David walked... Okay, David himself told Solomon this. God himself, back in chapter 3, tells Solomon this. Now we're in chapter 9. God himself is speaking again to Solomon, repeating these very same words. If you'll walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Look at verses 6 and 7. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I've given them. Is God being clear enough? Not only does he say it, but he says it multiple times. He says it a couple times, and he says it through David to Solomon. Now Solomon's got more wisdom than anyone. But there's part of Solomon that's hard to understand. For being such a wise man. Remember he asked for this understanding heart that he might be able to discern good and evil? And almost like he he pick and chooses which arenas he wants to apply the wisdom. Do we do that in our own lives? We know what the word says. We know what God would desire for us to do. Somehow, some way, and situations come up, decisions get made, and we seem to operate absent of what he's already said. As though there's a as though there's a, a part of our life where we are exempt from applying this wisdom. You know, you almost get that in chapter 9 verse 1 when it says he'd finished building and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do. 
And we read there in, in chapter 9, verses 4 through 7, essentially it's a promise of blessing for obedience and cursing or removal from disobedience. D- does the language of blessing and cursing sound familiar, church? As we've been working through the books of the Bible, I'm hoping that you recall, uh, especially that segment in Deuteronomy that had the blessings and the curses. This, this continues all through. Fast forward to chapter 11. And notice how chapter 11 begins. In fact, if you read through chapter 10, 14 through 29, you see this picture. Uh, It's sort of like a a gallery of Solomon's wealth, isn't it? And you read through it and you just go, wow, that's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Then you get to 11 and you see, but... But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Remember that, chapter 3? He took her as his wife, as well as he loved many foreign women. Uh Uh-oh. Women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. Deuteronomy 23, I believe, talks about this very clearly. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Listen to this next line. Solomon clung to these women in love. He loved them. Here's the tragic part. He loved them more than he loved God. More than he loved God's words and ways. He had 700 wives, princesses, And 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Is that not what Deuteronomy 17 said would happen? This ought not surprise us. For it was so, when Solomon was old, he's old now, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And here are the two words that I want to bring to your attention. The two words are fully follow in the New King James. But we see that it's at this point, the text tells us that Solomon did not fully follow follow the Lord as did his father David. Fully follow. What's God after in our lives, church? That we would fully follow him. Another another word or phrase, wholeheartedness. Love the Lord your God Not half-heartedly, wholeheartedly, with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. God granted Solomon wisdom beyond measure. Wealth, honor, fame. What took him down? 
the women, the wives. By the way, just for the record and making sure we're all clear here, in the beginning, God established the man and the woman and he brought the woman to the man and they became one. That church is the pattern for marriage. One man, one woman, together for life. Not one man, thousand wives. Not going to work well. Whenever we're not walking in God's ways, things are, are probably going to turn out poorly. This is the case in point. Wives turned his heart away. The text tells us that. And the wealth became a means of providing for his foreign wives. Okay? The Lord is angry in chapter 11, as you might expect. He speaks to Solomon now here again in verse 11. Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And then we enter into this third section of 1 Kings, which begins in chapter 12, runs through the end of chapter 22. And I know that you probably won't get to see this all that clearly, but I'll show it to you here anyway and talk through it. Up here with Saul and David and Solomon, we have what we call and know as the United Kingdom, right? And Saul's life is really covered much in 1 Samuel. David's life is covered much in 2 Samuel. And then beginning with Solomon and going all the way down here to the timeline, I kind of drew a black line here on this timeline with an arrow up. Everything in here is 1 Kings on the history line. Everything down here falls into 2 Kings, what we'll get to next week. And so we see these kings on both the, the northern tribe, the kings of Israel, and the kings of Judah over here. And this divided kingdom takes place. And the first two folks we, we, we see in this divided kingdom are Rehoboam, and Jeroboam. Okay? That's a helpful chart. You may have a chart similar to this in your, in your Bible. Um, or maybe you have one that's this big in your house. It's, it's, uh, I'd encourage you. It's a great resource right now as we're working through kings. Uh, it has a layout of the kings. But it also in the middle has a layout of all the prophets. And the length of their term. And, and the times. It kind of gives you a picture of when the prophets were serving. At what period during which king. Right? So we see some of that. I wanted to show that to you just as a, um, kind of give you a visual picture of the layout of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and where we've been on that and tracing uh, the kings. What we see in 1 Kings really are four kings. We've got four kings that get traced in, in 1 Kings, four kings of Judah, that is. Okay? And we see that uh, the four kings of Judah, we go and talk um, about the Rehoboam and Abijam. And Asa and Jehoshaphat. Those are the four. Okay? Now, more, much more actually will be shared about these kings in the account in Chronicles. And we'll save a majority of that for our study in the book of Chronicles. But we see that there are, in the same span of time, nine kings in Israel. Four in Judah, nine in Israel. Jeroboam, Nadab, by the way, Jeroboam reigned 22 years in Israel. Um, that, was, uh, that was tops, actually tied tops with Ahab, who comes along a little bit later. 
Nadab follows two-year reign. Baasha, 24 years. So you had three kings of Israel that, that had some time, really, in office, it seems. Elah reigned two years. Zimri reigned seven days. He's the guy who burned himself in his house, ended up killing himself. And then there was this dual reign for a while between Omri and Tibni. Omri ends up winning out. Tibni gets killed. Then you have Ahab, who was married to whom? Jezebel. Yeah, Jezebel. And she was anything but what her name means. Uh, her name means chaste. Um, Jezebel was uh, far from that. She was an interesting person. An interesting compliment, wasn't she, to, to her husband? Uh, in fact, you might recall uh, that passage in chapter 21 when Ahab is actually seems to do this fairly well and going to Naboth and he's saying, hey, I'd like to have your... He was big on vegetables. I, I, I kind of like that. He's big in the vegetable garden. It's by his house. I'll get you one that's better. I'll buy. I'll give you money for it. I mean, he seems to be negotiating fairly well. And, and, and he comes back, Naboth does, refusing, almost as though refusing because of who he is. The Lord forbid I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. And what's, what's the response of the king? The king goes back home and, and starts weeping on his bed. And you remember what Jezebel does? She says, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard. She signs her own letter, puts his stamp of approval on it, and essentially wipes out Naboth and then comes back and says, hey, the vineyard is yours. Well, this doesn't go unnoticed by the Lord. The Lord shows up, has a word, right? prophesies a particular word of what's going to happen to Ahab, a word that actually does happen, and prophesied that something is going to be happening through, and it comes through this prophet Micaiah. We see this line in 12 through 22, for the sake of my servant David. It keeps coming back. For the sake of my servant David. For the sake of my servant David. God in his mercy in his hesed, in his steadfast love, time and time again, chooses not to pour out and exhaust his wrath upon his people because of the promise he made to David. And he says that on multiple occasions in the text as he's talking through different kings. And, he, and he's talking about this light. In fact, we see it in chapter 11 with Jeroboam even. And you remember Ahijah the prophet? shows up and he has this new garment on and he tears it into 12 pieces. And, he, and I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon will give 10 tribes to you, Jeroboam. And he says, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen. For the sake, verse 34, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler over the day, all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. For the sake of my servant David. This lamp of David, this light of David, ends up becoming so important as we go through because king after king, there are so many kings, especially in Israel. There's maybe one good king, at least for a period of time, Jehu. 
Maybe. He's interesting himself. We'll get to him next week. We see some good kings. I believe six out of 20 in Judah. Six out of 20. What's that percentage? 30%? Depends on what you think about that. That, that, that. There's some good ones. In fact, with the two that are listed today, I didn't have them up here, but Asa started out really well and ended poorly. And Jehoshaphat was a very good king in many ways, but he aligned himself with that wicked Ahab. So we can see pieces here with these kings. And we can track also as we look at this, this phrase, he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Do you read that and you keep coming across that phrase of this king of Israel? The next king, uh, he sinned. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And in his sin, by which he had made Israel sin. What's that sin? I was, I was thinking about this and this sin. What's, what's, what are we talking about? Well, I don't know. I came across this. I'll put this forward to you to consider in chapter 13. It says, after this event, this is the man of God. The man of God has died. Remember that bizarre story? It really is bizarre in many ways. But at the end of that chapter in 13, after this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated them. Is that how priests got consecrated? Whoever, I want to be a priest today. Okay, come on over here. That isn't how it worked. But that's how, that's how Jeroboam was doing it. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And listen, listen to what it says next. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam. So as... To exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. That's pretty serious. So it keeps coming back and talking about walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of and hidden his sin, which he had made Israel sin. And we see time and time again these kings of Israel, they're worshiping other gods, erecting other idols. If you look in 1 Kings, one of the other things that you notice is the number of prophets. Nathan, praise God for Nathan in chapter 1 who goes to Bathsheba and says, Hey Bathsheba, is anybody taking notice that someone else is setting himself up to be king right now? David doesn't seem to have a clue. And that conversation starts the wheels turning, right? Nathan the prophet. We see Ahijah, the Shilonite. It gives us that picture of the new garment and the tearing of the kingdom to come. We see the man of God there in chapter 13 and the prophet of God from Bethel in chapter 13. We see Elijah, right? Chapter 17 and 18 and 19. Love those those passages in 17, 18 and 19 of Elijah. And Elijah was, uh, was a prophet during the time of which king? You remember? Ahab, right? Ahab, there was a famine in the land. And you remember Ahab gets brought to uh, Mount Carmel and all these prophets of Baal and, and prophetesses, they, they show up, the Astra, and it was a showdown of the gods. And at the end of it all, we see that the people fall on their face 
in recognition that the Lord is God. The Lord is God. In fact, that's exactly what he prays. He prays that very thing, that the people would know. Hear me, O Lord, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you. And that was really the role of the prophet, to turn the hearts of the people back to God, to call them to repent, to call them to walk in the words and ways of God. How many times do we see in the New Testament Jesus talking about people killing the prophets? They killed the prophets. They didn't like to hear the prophets. That's why Ahab didn't like. You know, remember Jehoshaphat said, hey, is there another man of God here? And he says, yeah, there's this guy, Micaiah, but I hate him. Remember the account? I hate him. Well, why do you hate him? Because he always prophesies against me. See, the prophets aren't necessarily prophesying against one man or another. They're prophesying and telling the people what God says. Here's what God says. And really that comes down to our life, doesn't it, church? What are we doing with what God says? Does, does what God says mean anything anymore? Because the prophets of the day and kings, as we see this, continue to unfold. These prophets are telling these kings something the kings should have known because they were to copy this book of the law and have it with them and they were to read it every day. What they were hearing was not supposed to be new news. These prophets were calling the kings to hear the word of the Lord. Don't turn from following the Lord's commandments. Speak, they, they'd speak words of warning. They, spoke, they, they would show up on the front end sometimes warning. They would show up right in the middle of, of uh, activity that was suspicious. Stop doing what you're doing or else. And they would sometimes show up on the back end. Essentially pronouncing judgment like Nathan did with David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And as I was thinking about the role of the prophets in 1 Kings, I couldn't help but be uh, reminded of that prophet in the New Testament that begins as the precursor to Jesus. Remember John, the prophet? He comes, and he comes to prepare the way of the Lord. He calls people to repent. He warns them of turning from the one who is to come, the Messiah. And so we see this gospel thread even being weaved throughout 1 Kings. While there are changing in the guard, so to speak, in terms of the kings, nine on one side, four on the other side, through the book of 1 Kings. There's this call, a consistent call to walk in obedience to the Lord God. Walk in obedience to the Lord God. Fully follow Fully follow. What happened to Solomon? What was his downturn? He didn't fully follow. It's really a simple message. I believe one of the things we learn from the first kings. For you, it might not be taking on multiple wives. Maybe it's an offshoot of that, men. A sexual immorality of some other kind. 
Maybe it is wealth. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe the stuff has you. Has your heart. And let's not fool anybody here because the Bible says that he knows our hearts. So you might be sitting here this morning thinking no one else knows. God knows. By the way, his word is is defined as uh, a word that is living and powerful and active that cuts. It cuts. It penetrates. And it's intended to bring healing. It's intended to bring wholeness. It's intended to strengthen. It's intended to revive. Read Psalm 119. You get a picture of that very thing. Wisdom is something we all need, amen? We need it. We make a lot of decisions in the course of our days. We need God's wisdom. We need God's perspective. Here's where we get that. Right here. God's word. His word of truth. You're not going to find it on the newsstand. You're not going to find it anywhere else but in God's revealed word. And if you are in Christ here today, you also have the Holy Spirit operating in you. The Holy Spirit is always going to point you to the ways of Christ. Always going to point you to the ways of truth. Always going to lead you in the way of wisdom. From the Lord comes wisdom. God is at work in the history of these kings, many of whom were perverse and wicked. But through it all, it's important for us to understand God is still God. God is still on the throne. God is moving, acting through people like Micaiah. He's moving and acting through people like Elijah. He's moving and acting through people like Ahijah, the the, the prophet. Through people like Jehoshaphat. Through kings like Asa. Through kings, as we'll see next week, like Hezekiah and Josiah. Praise God for those people. Shining light in the midst of a load of darkness. Remember, we're not done. How many books are, are there in the Bible? 66. We're not done after 1 Kings. It looks messy still in 1 Kings when we get to the close of 1 Kings. But hold out hope. God is still at work and he's going to continue to do his work in and through the lives of his people who are fully following And we'll keep seeing glimpses of these people who are fully following God in the days ahead. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this church and I pray that for each one of us here, young and old, there would be this desire to fully follow you. We we see that that phrase is used in the negative as it relates to Solomon. But Lord, instead of dwelling on the negative, I'd like to spin that and use the same terminology. But put it forward to all of us here. as something we need to be doing. Something you've called us to be doing. It's, it's what you are after in our lives. We've been put here to give you glory. 
to enjoy you. To be a disciple of your son Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the picture that Christ himself gives of putting two hands to the plow and not looking back. Fully follow. Purify our hearts, Lord. I pray that we would be fully devoted, wholeheartedly in this, And I pray, Lord, that as kings in our home, the men here in this place would lead as you've called us to lead. That we would take this word, that we would read it, we would have it with us, and we would be unashamed to speak of it. Your word is life. I pray, Lord, that your people here in this place would live their lives each day with an awareness of what you have already said and said and said and keep saying time and again in your word. May we take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine, to the teaching in your word. May we learn the lessons from history. May we walk in the way of wisdom. And so, Lord, we begin by talking about and asking to teach us about numbering our days and the days that we have. And these days are like the grass of the field. We're, we're but a mist. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. But, Lord, the, the psalmist... I, I, I just pray that we would have that heart. That we would ask of you for each day that we might gain this heart of wisdom. And Lord, as we gain a heart of wisdom through you, the giver of wisdom, I pray, Lord, that our days would be spent fully following you. That we wouldn't get sidetracked with some of these things that we saw up here on the board but instead we would fully follow you and that we would continue steadfastly to love you all the days of our life. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.